The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, The Reality of Not-Self. And beginning um, with a, uh, something that was sent to me by one of my uh, Dhamma teacher colleagues um, that came from one of her students... What are you? My young son shouts gleefully at me me several times a day over the past year. In his world, in his world, being is fluid. He's now a cheetah, now a crocodile, now a spaceman, now an earthworm. At the zoo, he tries on each new animal as we move from one exhibit to the next. Initially, I try to play along. I'm a butterfly. He'd look at me critically. No, you're mama. My responses became mundane. I'm your mom. I'm a woman named Sue. I'm tired. I'm trying to put on your shoes. He was entirely neutral with any response. For a time, I was profoundly annoyed with the question, internally wincing at each repetition. Leaning in, I came to understand This not as an irritation with my son, but with the effort it takes to constantly try to figure myself out. Eventually, I dropped the effort. The question became an invitation to wake up. My mindfulness bell. My tiny Buddha master shouting my own personal koan at me. What are you? Exactly. The question resonates in the open silence of mindful awareness. Answers still pop up, both mundane and philosophical in turn. I'm a river of being. I'm annoyed. I'm adoring. I'm thoughts, feelings, and sensations. The flow of life passing right through the open door of my mind. Rumi says, this being human is a guest house. Every morning is a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Which quirk of your daily life, experienced perhaps as an irritation, an effort, a task, a sensation, a recurring question, might be your mindfulness bell in disguise. Over a period of years during my childhood and on through adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror. Seeing myself, looking at myself in the mirror, endlessly. I was amazed, sometimes fascinated, and intrigued at times. And if I thought very much about it, I'd get to feeling perplexed. But mostly I was just really interested. Interested enough that it's the only dream that I clearly remember experiencing from my early years. And this dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life, beginning when at the age of 16... I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. Right then I had the very distinct feeling of touching into a very deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking at myself in the mirror, looking at myself in the mirror, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, (laughs) became the gist 
of the direction that my life has followed ever since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three uh, characteristics, the three universal characteristics, the three truths of all phenomena. The first being anicca, the constantly changing impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience, and every phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum. With the second universal characteristic being dukkha, meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world. Nothing being secure in the outer world of experiences, of relationships, places, situations, material objects, as well as the world of all of our inner experiences of body and mind. None of it really offering a secure, sustaining sense of pleasure or happiness, but rather the round and round and round of pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly good, bad, liking, disliking, the ongoing rounds of conditioned existence. Simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all phenomena, its nature being to change and to pass away. This evening we'll explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality, I think, that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe more overt fear. In its essence, this third truth is so basic and so simple and that with just even a a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing in a way that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the veil of concept of an idea, of belief, that separates us from the reality of not-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept, of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, that, it, With the context of our immediately or our immediate body and mind experience, within the context of our immediate body mind experience, and within the imagined context of the possible future or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes and fears and beliefs, to relinquish the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self-identities. It's very important to realize that in relinquishing our attachments, we're not asked to throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self, everything we believe to be our self, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. 
What we call self on one level is a subtle and yet clearly discernible phenomena of process that we can sense and feel, see, and know directly, directly through our practice. And one aspect that I've mentioned already a couple of times in uh, previous Dhamma talks that's readily available uh, to know experientially is the body as a process made up of many elements. The earth element, again, with its characteristics of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The water element, with its characteristics of flowing and cohesion. And the fire element, with its its characteristics of heat or hot or cool or coldness. And the air element, or the wind element, as it's sometimes called, with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elements in constant flux, in and of themselves and in relationship with each other. Our so-called self, our bodily self, is in constant flux just like the fast-flowing river on the other side of the road here in front of the Columbine Inn. So, in truth, there's nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to, nothing to identify with. Actions without an actor, doings without a doer, as the Buddha said. And as you probably know, at least to some degree, essentially all of the Buddha's teachings and practices eventually lead to this. The Buddha actually refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging to unreality. He wouldn't discuss questions that didn't deal directly in some way with understanding and undoing confusion and anguish. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to an experiential understanding of the truth, an experiential understanding of the way of things. He was a teacher of a practical path to inner peace. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such sincerity and humility and willingness that we begin to see ourself more accurately. We begin to see through ourself by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves. Without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached. Without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're identified with them. And the key to this is what can be called bare attention. Which is a basic unalloyed, pure form of mindfulness. It's a purely receptive state that attends to the bare facts of perception without reacting to them. Meaning not commenting, not making something of what's being perceived, and not doing anything about what's being known at that moment. So it's actually very simple. Maybe not so easy, but actually it's very simple. Bare attention allows things to speak for themselves without the interruption of habitual judgments or habitual verdicts. What's being attended to with the mindfulness of bare attention allows each thing, each phenomena, each experience to 
finish its speaking, so to say, without any interruption. We learn that, in fact, things, phenomena, actually have much to say about themselves, which formerly was mostly ignored or maybe drowned out by the inner noise of misperceiving, misjudging, and the strain of over-efforting and impatience that we humans ordinarily normally live with. Bare attention sees things ever anew, we could say, as though for the first time, which then allows things to reveal something new and worthwhile with more and more frequency, more and more often. We're then able to receive a wider and, and what it, to receive wider and deeper horizons of understanding, wisdom that quite naturally open us in a seemingly effortless way. This way of attending to our experience is a training, a way to be practiced and to be learned. Along the way, bare attention is uh, along the way bare attention is sustained for as long a time as our strength and depth of concentration permits. So it's very closely related to the development of our capacity for a focused attention. This capacity of mind is developed and it matures in an incredibly rich and is an incredibly rich source of inspiration and understanding in relationship to our practice and in relationship to our life as a whole. So here we are sitting in this retreat and at some point sitting at home or maybe at work. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness and lightness are just heavy heaviness and lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. The rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly is merely rising and falling. The subtle brushing of the in-breath at the anapana spot is merely the subtle brushing of the in-breath at the anapana spot. Remembering is just remembering. Thinking is just merely thinking. All of these things, all of these occurrences are merely, are just themselves. And as the great meditation uh, master and teacher Ajahn Chah said, there are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional experience, in the realm of conditional phenomena being, being experienced, there's no real no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, in the realm of conditioned, conditional experience, there, we could say that there's no real sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. And some words from the Buddha. This is a teaching that he gave to his student, Magiya. 
Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megia, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. We experience this and that. Everything, anything. And can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of our self without claiming ownership, without investing in interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we sense and see. So for instance, we think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again. This is how we become. This is how we perpetuate continuing to become. This is how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that they are not self, is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. As we continue to mindfully investigate with willingness and humility and bear attention, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped beliefs that there's a self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will gradually come undone. And when this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally and steadily increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but rather connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's really only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what's being observed or what's being investigated are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling, merely heat, merely an ache in the chest or tingling moving through the body, merely a thought arising and passing. No duality, as it's sometimes spoken of. Not two, just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training one's self again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts and bodily sensations and other sense-door experiences, as well as feelings and mind states and perceptions as mere impersonal processes, can the power of deeply rooted egocentric thoughts, habits, and self-centered inclinations be loosened and broken up 
reduced, relinquished, and at some point, finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, that we come to know not self. And then, for just a moment or two, and eventually, finally, it's not all about me and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine that's based in the fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind, is free. And from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, or me, or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. It's a heavy load, actually. It's a burden to carry ourself around. This body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all the hopes, all the fears. We shoulder quite a heavy burden carrying around all the things in life in forms of thoughts and feelings and various opinions and perceptions and beliefs, believing that they're mine believing they are me, believing they're myself. And there's a kind of sting that we feel in hauling around all these permutations, all the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership and identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you. It hasn't gotten you or gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly and so truly that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. We keep looking and seeing and living life. And in fact, really, living life much more freshly and much more fully in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher right here on retreat, of course, and in our life outside of a retreat setting. And a poem that speaks to this in its very poetic way. It's called Only When I Am Quiet and Do Not Speak. And it's by Jane Hirschfield, the Zen poet Jane Hirschfield. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug. Hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feeling, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other act of 
shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for an instant the actual instant. As if they believed it possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. So for instance, I, do I reside in the intestine? Do I reside in the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone? Or the skin or the head hair or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath at the nostrils, is that me? Do I reside in the cool, fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? Or in the sensation of the beginning, or the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? We might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot. Maybe I'm not the sensation of the in-breath. But certainly, Certainly my mind, certainly my consciousness is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things that most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. But the truth is the very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed, unborn. So let's look into our own mind, heart, just for a moment right now. And as these next words are spoken, let go of listening with the intellect. Let go of interpreting with the intellect and just simply open and receive the words, just simply directly hearing. Where and what is it that we call mine? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape, a color, a texture? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body or from someone else? Do you find anything we could call mind? <coughs> Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body? Is it different from the nature of anything?
maybe for a moment you sense and see its empty nature like experiencing zero as one of my Burmese teachers Pawak Sayadaw says in the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan he says when you look at zero you see nothing look through it and you see the world and so the Buddha coming directly from his own experience turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down even our precious our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena the conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment just like every other conditional phenomena consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors no matter how gross or how subtle that object may be it's often also dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of the contact it's dependent on the mental labels and constructs and clinging that arise in the conscious mind through contact contact and to make this very clear to his students the buddha spoke quite specifically about the six doors of consciousness eye consciousness ear consciousness nose consciousness tongue consciousness body consciousness and mind consciousness it's from this perspective that the buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional and that because of this it can be one of the arising conditions that leads to suffering so i'd like to share two uh, short suttas from the samyutta nikaya um that uh, illustrate this in in their own ways and their conversations that the buddha is having uh with someone else the first is a conversation with one of the devas and the deva is asks the buddha what produces a person what does he or she have that runs around what enters upon samsara what is his or her greatest fear from what is she not yet freed what determines his or her destiny and the buddha responds to the deva craving is what produces a person his or her mind is what runs around a being enters upon samsara suffering is his or her greatest fear she or he is not freed from suffering kama determines his or her destiny the second conversation from the samyutta nikaya is uh with between the buddha and ananda ananda being the buddha's chief disciple and the venerable ananda speaking to the buddha says venerable sir it's said empty is the world empty is the world in what way is it said empty is the world and the buddha responds it is ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said empty is the world and what is empty of self and what belongs to self the i ananda is empty of self and what belongs to self forms are empty of self and what belongs to self i consciousness i contact and then the buddha goes on through each of the sense door consciousness is in this way ending with mind consciousness 
mind consciousness and whatever feeling arises with mind consciousness as the condition, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, that too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that is, it is said, empty is the world. Just to say, it's actually pretty simple, even though it sounds maybe complicated to you. (laughs) We can't hold on to any of it. It does not belong to us. It's that simple. And again from the Buddha, again from the Samyutta Nikaya. When one does not intend and one does not plan, and one does not have a tendency towards anything. No basis exists for the maintenance of individual, of, of individual or we could say self-centered consciousness. When there is no basis, there is no support for the establishing of this self-centered consciousness. When this self-centered consciousness is unestablished and doesn't come to growth, There's no inclination. When there's no inclination, there's no coming and going. When there's no coming and going, there's no passing away and being born. When there's no passing away and being born, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And now offering a a wonderfully simple poem by the contemporary Buddhist poet Jim Harrison, who actually died just a few years ago. (coughs) I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, (coughs) to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night in the full sweet flow, to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat, and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words uh, that I'll be speaking. And if an image doesn't come easily for you, that's fine. Simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So sitting comfortably, closing your eyes. Visualizing or in some way sensing an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your mind, fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems. Each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. 
in this image, this vision, this felt sense, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all of the gems at all of the points in the net. a boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. And now, let the image or let the felt sense just dissolve. Let it go. (coughs) The intricately interwoven tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jewel net of life, jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of not-self. This is the ground of understanding, the aspect of wisdom of not-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, we find that more and more often we act only from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There is only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There is no separate, no isolated, independent you. No separate me. And now the second guided meditation. In the mind's eye, the eye of wisdom, which is centered in the heart, as my teacher Pawak Sayadaw says, visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. Relaxing and staying open and present with this. Now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving and changing shape, dissolving, new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the mind, the heart, rest in the openness of the sky, in the vast openness, not fixating on any cloud. Just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. 
if at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart-mind to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless, sky-like space. Now let the image and the felt sense fade away. And just sit for a moment, letting the heart, the mind open wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. Who's aware? Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body. Back to the breath. Back to hearing. And we'll just sit quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass with a willingness and with humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence of all things that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in. And we keep looking. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there is no thing that totally and sustainingly satisfies No thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in a sustaining way. And we begin to understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us truly happy and at ease. As we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror of ourself, going back and back and back into the looking glass of self, mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open and more all-encompassing. And at the same time, more penetrating and more spacious. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something, or some solid rendition of I, some solid rendition of me, some fixed, eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this brightness, this bright, vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. And in this, There's no solid, 
separate I or other. In this essential emptiness, there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease. Even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly reside mentally in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems. Really the greatest problems. The greatest suffering that we experience. We have a sense of being separate. Being an isolated, separate entity. And this is the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering. The core loneliness that human beings feel. So I'd like to share a story with you. It's a true story about a friend of mine. This particular friend was um, suffering with this core loneliness. And so he decided to seek help, uh, 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 the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of, uh, in his early 40s. And with the advice from friends, he picked a therapist who had a, a Buddhist spiritual orientation. When he called to make an appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be very helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, if he brought some symbol of his concern with him for his first therapy session. So my friend told me that he arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different shapes and sizes and colors. And then he set them down on the floor in the waiting room. Then he went back out to his car and he got another load, a huge load of baggage of all different shapes, sizes, and colors and put them on top of the first load. This is true. (laughs) Really, it is true. It's a true story. Um, And and then he told me, and he said he's told the therapist, that he had to go around collecting baggage from various friends and family members because he didn't have enough of his own, he said. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he took all of his baggage in with him, piled it all up between him and the therapist. And he said that at some point during this first session uh, with this therapist, in her wisdom, she asked my friend to open up all of the baggage that he'd brought with him, which he did. He opened it all up, and he found there was nothing inside any of it. Very wise therapist. It's not every client that you could do this with. But this man was obviously ready for such a pointing out. When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this simple reality, Often at first there's a kind of poignancy. And then at some point there can be a sense of entering into a kind of measureless beauty. And often there's a feeling of great relief. Like putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly. And not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature. And then just simply set it down. So another story. This is an old teaching story uh, that I like very much. It's a story of a woman who had uh, practiced for many years and had some quite powerful and expansive and even some illuminating experiences. But she still felt like she hadn't uh, reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and She was feeling that there wasn't much time left. And so she really wanted freedom very much in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself uh, up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who uh, was up there. 
that she'd heard was able to turn the mind, was able to uh, turn the heart to the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her very arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down. And just as he passed the woman, uh, just as he passed, the woman uh, stopped and, and she called out to him. And he stopped and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up at the top of the mountain and explained that she was on her way up uh, to see this being because she really wanted to know the deepest truth. She really wanted to know the ultimate wisdom so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. She explained that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and all of her anguish and all of her striving. And she told the old man who was on his way down the mountain that she heard that this wise one up at the top of the mountain might be able to reveal this to her. The old man listened, stood still, looked at her briefly, and then, taking his time, he slowly turned around and continued walking on down the mountain just for a few steps. And then he stopped again, and he briefly stood still, and again slowly turning back around towards the woman. And then he very carefully and slowly took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain toward the village. Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. And we keep exploring and sensing and seeing and understanding. And in fact, living life much more freshly and more fully right here and now. And ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And the wing of compassion our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, of all things, this being the relative aspect of the understanding of not-self, is what connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness, and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world. So closing the talk with two pieces from the collection called the Udana, the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. I read something that the other day, I think. This first one from the Buddha. Seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. And the second piece from the Buddha, from the, the Udana. And this is him speaking to his uh, disciple, Bahia. This is the teaching he gave to Bahia. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. 
In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, then and then you see that there is no thing here. You will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this, nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.